2: Welcome
0: back to Forma, a podcast that features conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and leaders that are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education and Christian community. I'm David Kern. Today's episode is actually a re-air. A while back, probably a little more than a year ago, I spoke with our good friend Christine Perrin about teaching poetry and uh, bringing the poetry into the classroom, about some of the fears that can come along with, with trying to teach it well, the desire to, to have students who love it, to share your own love of it with your students, and um, sometimes to, to try to discover a love of it while, you, <laughs> while you're teaching it as well. We talked about a number of things related to that, and I wanted to re-air that episode Because the newest issue of our magazine, of Forma, is the poetry issue. It's coming out this fall. We're finishing it up now. We're finishing up the editorial process, and it's going to go to layout soon. And then this October, it's going to be mailing out to you. If you are not signed up for this issue, which you can get for free, you can head over to FormaJournal.com. Subscribe there. We do have some news, though, because we are actually turning Forma into a quarterly. So you will be able to subscribe for that. It's $4 a month, or... $39 Thirty nine dollars a year. If you want to save, get two months free. You can you can sign up for the annual subscription. You can also give this as a gift in either of those two um, two amounts. The subscription though is not just for the journal. You will get all four copies of the journal, but we also will have a members only, a subscribers only weekly email digest that will feature bonus essays, interviews, and reviews, and plus it will give you access to the digital edition of every issue, including the archives of past issues. If you would like to learn more about this you can head over to formerjournal.com and click the subscribe button. Again, it's $4 a month. So that's the cost of like what a latte at Starbucks or it's $39 a year. And that gives you two months free. We also will still have one free issue and that issue will go out in November and it will be an annual compilation issue. So we're going to take some of the things uh, from each of those four quarterlies, as well as from the former website and the email list. And we're going to, put that into a, um, a version that we're going to give up for free. So if that's the version that you want, if you just want to get the free one, you can still get that. Um, and you can maintain your current status uh, on the current mailing list. But if you want to get the subscription, head over to formerjournal.com and subscribe. But as I said, the next issue is the poetry issue. We've got content in there on iambic pentameter on sonnets. On poetry and Homer. The issue is just full of great content and we are really excited to bring that to you. So uh, if you have not signed up for that, you can go over to our website um, and you can make sure that you are subscribed to the free issue. And then of course, like I said, we'd certainly appreciate any kind of other subscription that you'd like to sign up for. Before I send you over to my conversation with Christine Perrin though, which is a re-air from the old Quiddity show, I just want to say a word from our friends over at the Azusa Pacific Honors College. They prepare the next generation of Christian leaders through a great books course of study that emphasizes faith, wisdom, and virtue. Honor students at Azusa Pacific enjoy several benefits, including an honor scholarship, small Socratic-style classes, a curriculum with no secondary textbooks, no exams, and no busy work, exemption from general education courses, access to honors housing, and free trips to world-class arts experiences across Southern California. If this sounds interesting to you, or you think it might sound interesting to a student in your home or in your classroom, you can head over to apu.edu slash honors. And again, you can learn more about the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University by heading over to apu.edu slash honors. All right, without further ado, this is my conversation from a while back with Christine Perrin about teaching poetry. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Okay, Christine. Poetry. Poetry. Before before I ask my first question, um, can you tell us a little bit about what your role, like what you do in, in the world of poetry? Um, mm-hmm. You're a teacher at Messiah College, is that right? Professor? I
1: am. Yes, I teach at Messiah, um, not just poetry, but um, that was certainly my door into the teaching world. Okay. Um, I actually started teaching when I was um, in college. I just walked down the street to the local high school in the city of Baltimore and said, can I teach? Because I felt so happy about Mm. what I was learning and I wanted to share it with people. Mm. And since then, what I've really found is that the teaching part is what puts a special kind of pressure or atmosphere around a poem, Hmm. um, you can love it by itself, you can memorize it, you can think about it, live your life around it. But when you talk about it with other people, and when you gaze at it together with all those intelligences in the room, just people willing to show up, it doesn't have to be brilliant poetry people, you know, Hmm. Um, something happens, it yields to that pressure. Hmm. And I think I, I learned that in college, um, so anyway, teaching, I teach poetry to college students, but I've taught to lots of ages. Um, when my kids were going to a classical school, um, every year starting in kindergarten, I volunteered in their classroom hmm. and I just went and would teach poetry, um, hmm. uh, you know, and, and basically really did it for most of their 13 years in school. Um, just for the love of it. Yeah. Um, and the love of the kids, <laughs> It started out because I wanted them to love it, yeah. and I knew they might not get it otherwise. I wasn't sure what they would get, but then later what it turned into was I loved talking about it with minds that were at these different stages, Mm. you know, so kindergartners were noticing certain things, and so I just love the curiosity of exchange. Um, I also uh, write poetry, Mm. poetry. and have a couple of people who help me, you know, give me feedback. We argue about things in my poems and their poems, so we help each other. Um, teach a young writer's workshop in the summers at Messiah for 9th mm-hmm. through 12th graders. And from time to time have had a chance to teach homeschoolers um, one-on-one or one-on-two or, you know, in smaller groups. Mm-hmm. Um and I teach my niece who's homeschooled um, and lives in Egypt. We Skype okay. every week. Oh, nice. So, nice. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> okay. I also,
1: textbook. Just, I also wrote a textbook on it because I so hmm. much want people to have access. Um, trying to think. I think that's about my... That's all? Contact.
0: <laughs> so, um, and is the textbook, is that the one that's available through Classical Academic Press? It is, yes. And what's that called?
1: The Art of Poetry.
0: Okay. So if somebody wants to get their hands on that at the end of the show, they can head over to classicalacademicpress.com and find yes. it there. Okay. Yes,
2: absolutely.
0: Okay, so I think as this is a good segue to a question about teaching poetry since you're talking about the different ways that you teach. Um, I think I've experienced this as a teacher where I love a poem – and I want to bring it to my class and I taught juniors and seniors. I want to bring it to those kids and I want to help them love it. Mm-hmm. But then there's, there's a lot of anxiety about how to approach that because either you're anxious that you don't know the poem well enough, you don't know the author well enough, you don't know poetry in general well enough, you're not sure. a good enough teacher. <laughs> um, your kids, or the, a lot of the kids that I was teaching um, were not, some of them liked poetry more than others, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And then others knew it more than others. But there's a lot of anxiety that can come with teaching a poem that you love. And how do you... um, First of all, why do you think that teaching poetry leads to that kind of anxiety in a way that maybe teaching a novel doesn't? At least that was the way it was for me. And maybe I I would think I'm not the only person who feels that
2: way.
1: It's interesting because I also have a lot of anxiety about teaching novels because Mm. they're so long and there's so much going on. And I yeah. sometimes it's have trouble knowing how to break them down and give them the time they need and mm-hmm. such. Um, but yes, absolutely, I have myself have anxiety for just the reasons that you're describing. Um, I think there's two brands of it. Uh, the one is, I love this. It matters so much to me. I want you to love it. I'm afraid you won't. I'm afraid I'll, you won't love it because of me. Um,
0: <laughs> it, the, that's the worst.
1: It's the worst. It's like you want to share something and you get in the way of it. Mm. Um, And actually, I often, that is my prayer in teaching, that I won't get in the way of these things that I love so much, you know, because I don't feel like I'm the master in any way. I feel like the poems are
2: Mm. or
1: the literature is. Um, So the other fear is that you won't know something. And um, I think... um, both of them are worth dispelling. Um, and there, I think there are some really, some good, easy ways to dispel that. Um, one is, um, just to think about what it means to know in relationship to poetry. I think we've Mm -hmm. really forgotten that poetry is so much addressing our bodies. It's addressing our hearts. Um, One of the things that we all love about Tolkien is that his characters are always stopping and kind of sounding out their hearts Hmm. in order to help them make a decision. My heart tells me. You know, they're often saying things like that.
2: Hmm. That's interesting. And
1: I think um, I would say that in terms of poetry, your heart and your body tell you things that are very, very important, that are the starting point for poems and if you get too much bound up in those things that are important and can be pleasurable but are lower order concerns in terms of the poem they're farther down the line um you know it's like if you wanted to convince me to like cars you wouldn't start out by talking about all the different particular ways that different engines worked you know you would start out by saying well what colors do you like and what what shapes do you like, and when did you have a good ride last? And you know what I mean? Those kinds of larger questions that start at the entry point, that start at the gateway, that start at the threshold. Hmm. And so, I think everyone's equipped to walk into the threshold of the poem. And if you love a poem, you're even more equipped. And that equipment of love shouldn't be discounted. And I think we're really used to kind of saying, well, I just like this a lot. I don't really know that much about it. But I think liking something a lot, loving something is a very deep form of knowing and one that can be trusted. Um, and as long as you're not trying to, like, for instance, I'll just give you an example. Emily Dickinson's really hard. She's, she's thorny. She's dense. She's complex. Um, she's obscure. Whenever I start with students with her, I always say to them, let's just see what we can figure out. Let's not worry about what we can't understand because Mm -hmm. there's so much in Dickinson we can't understand. There's so much I can't understand, you know? And I have college professor Mm -hmm. colleagues who won't teach Dickinson because she's so hard, you know? Mm -hmm. But that's the wrong approach. The right approach is to say, what can we get? So I think showing up with heart and body, um, and the first part of that is reading aloud,
0: yeah, I, I was gonna say yeah. Yeah. So do, before we talk about reading aloud, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot, yeah. um, do we need to just think about it as um, about about discovery, about um, a form of discovery, um, like discovering little bits and pieces of a mystery, as opposed to thinking about it from a scientific in a scientific way, where there's a, you're trying to identify certain kinds of like laws and sh- is, th- is so is, is it w- instead of looking at it in a scientific fashion as if it's something that can be dissected are you suggesting then that we should be looking at it um as if it's a mystery or a a journey that we're just we learn things as we go one bit at a time
1: i love that david that's a, such a good question in fact as you're talking i'm thinking of sea diving i It's wonderful to imagine, you know, the search for the poem as a dive, you know, where you go to one level and you go to the next level and you look around and you've got these goggles on and you're breathing oxygen, you know, because you can't really breathe that water. Um, I I would say that it's not that the scientific doesn't matter at all. Um, But again, that that's much farther down the road and that Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right that we begin with poems. We begin in discovery. We begin in immersion. We begin in direct contact. And if we start by saying, "What's the rhyme scheme? What's the metaphor? What's the family of images? What's the meter?" Um, we begin at the wrong end of inquiry.
2: Hmm.
1: So that there's a, you know, it's not that that inquiry doesn't matter. And I even in art of poetry, I teach the elements because it's a really good way to frame your conception of what you're looking for. You do have to know what to look for. Um, And you want to get there eventually because when you love something, you do want to kind of dwell on the particulars and you want to know more particulars. But you have to become attached to it first.
2: Hmm.
1: And um, Mm -hmm. that isn't to say that every single poem you'll always get attached to. You know, there are going to be times as well when, as Lewis says... You know, you begin kind of with the hard labor and your rewards are um, maybe not um, the rewards that are inherent to the endeavor. So,
2: for instance,
1: as a teacher, it's very important to be um, engaging, um, to make uh, when I have students, sometimes I'll have them just memorize the poem before we even talk about it. And stand hmm. up and do motions and, um, I'll be excited about it, you know, so that they can be rewarded by my response to them, or I'll get them to say things that reward each other for being engaged, you know? So I do think that compensation in the experience is important, but that the compensation that we start with is different than the one that we get to
2: hmm.
1: later on down the road. Hmm. And we do have to start with rewards, hmm. um, Sometimes the rewards are just how that feels in my ear or in my Hmm. mouth. You know, like, ooh, ooh, I like to say that.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But I love your question. That's a beautiful question. It's more of sea diving for a lost trunk of treasure than it is um, Hmm. uh, raising fish in a hatchery Hmm.
2: where
1: you're testing the chemical composition of the water and the food that you're putting in, and, you know.
0: Well, I think, you know, one of the metaphors that we sometimes talk about around here is sometimes when you're teaching a novel, for example, or, or put it this way, like if, you, if you're if you going to a pond and you mm-hmm. want your student or you want to know more about what a bullfrog is like in the swamp, then you probably want to just spend a lot of time around a bullfrog seeing how they live in their environment, then taking the bullfrog home and opening it up and looking at its organs you could you can do if you do that you're going to see what a bullfrog has and what makes up its parts but that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to know kind of what a bullfrog is inherently like what makes it being, being yeah
1: yeah yeah and i mean I, they're both really valid methods of inquiry
2: mm-hmm.
1: but um but we start somewhere we start walking down the country road and having the frog jump on our path yeah and hearing it and touching it and mm. you know sure sh- you know shrinking away from it all those things happen first yeah um i wouldn't want to meet it first under a knife um i remember um wishing that when i grew up i wished that my brother could teach me science because he ended up studying science and The way he taught it was so much related to our lives and, you know, his own curiosity, his own interest. You know, he would want to look at things and talk about them and say different things that he had learned about them. And I I just thought, wow, I would have enjoyed that so much more if I had started there Hmm. Um, as opposed to in a textbook.
0: Well, you know, I have a a three-year-old. He's almost four. feel like he comes up one of my kids comes up in almost every podcast i record um (laughs) but i guess that makes sense when most of them are about teaching um (laughs) but you know when i watch him just being outside so much of what he's doing is you know he wants to look at the tomato or the tomato plant in the garden or you want he's like sitting there squatting down looking at a some roly-poly or chasing some bug around or something like that and he doesn't really have any interest in you know opening i mean he might pull their legs off i guess but you know he doesn't have any interest in in he's learning to love them and who what they are and how they exist just by Mm -hmm. being around them and it's not Mm -hmm. he doesn't care so much about the the organs of the the frog, or whatever, or the lizard. And when he sees a lizard, that's that's the end of the next twenty minutes, or nothing else is going to happen. <laughs> um,
1: With the skeletal system, right? You know. Yeah, but someday he will.
0: Yeah, and he's a lot more likely to want to to know that it's going to feel like less drudgery if he cares ahead of time already. Yeah. So let's say you are teaching a class. I mean, I know that when you teach a poem, you take a different approach depending on the age of the students and the, the kind of experience and things like that. But let's take kind of a standard class, and let's say you're teaching ninth, just a high school. You're teaching high schoolers. And okay. say you're teaching a poem like uh, Robert Frost After Apple Picking,
2: okay. which is
0: actually one of my favorites. And I think it's one of my favorites to teach. Um, what's the first thing you're going to do when you come into that class that day? Are you going to have them read After Apple Picking ahead of time? Or are you going to have their experience be, with the poem be the first time when you read it together? And, and what's your approach going to be? To this poem and if you're me you love this poem
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you don't want to ruin it for them
1: <laughs> okay. well often students come in having read it on their own but i always encourage them to read it aloud for homework or to get together with each other you know to make homework fun and do it with each other um then i will have them come into class and we'll read it aloud several times um and I tell them things like your body is the instrument that's playing this poem and we can hear three of you read it and it will be different because of the instrument of your body so you know and I, I try to encourage them about reading to to, to let themselves go I, I noticed that um, when I started teaching college college students um, were very uh, self-conscious about reading aloud Hmm. Um, my guess is that's not true for homeschooled ninth graders or even classically schooled ninth graders, but it's very true. It's very common in the world. Um, so reading aloud and trying to get comfortable with that and do that generously and expressively. Um, but also in accordance with your own temperament and not necessarily performatively, you know?
0: Yeah. You don't Um, all need to sound like Laurence Olivier.
1: Right. (laughs) Right. Um, yeah, and um, then uh, one thing that I will often have people do is is respond at first by just repeating lines or phrases or words that they loved. Hmm. Um, you know, and we can do that after each reading or we can do it at the end of all three. Um, but that's remarkably helpful because you don't have to put together something intelligent yet, you know, all you have to do is respond, and so the pedagogy privileges response, just pure response you don't have to be smart, you don't have Mm -hmm. to say the quick thing, you know, that puts it all together because people take a while to process poems and any time that you can give them to do that will help their enjoyment of it, I think Um, sometimes you can even have them put it in a commonplace book, you know, you can have them record it communicating to them that this is important. Um, I'll just make a footnote on this. The most successful thing that I have done this year as a teacher of poetry, which was a surprise to me, new thing, was have students, and these are obviously maybe not ninth grade students for their first time with poetry, but students read a book of poems, a a slim volume of poems together aloud Hmm. um, in a single sitting going around the circle with the books open um, and doing this method of responding almost with a ver- oral commonplace. What you understand about a poet at the end of that, you know, after reading a whole book of their poems and immersing in their head and their language and their rhythms, is you will be shocked. I mean, David, you should do it with your dad and your family and, you know, co- hmm. you'll be amazed by what you know at the end. I mean, you could write the best review of that book that you've ever written. (laughs) Um, And Mm. students who have had no exposure to poetry have this happen to them. Mm. So it just it tells it reinforces again for me that just that process of immersing and as much immersion with the ear, with the mouth, um, with repetition, with memory, um, that's the way in. That's the best thing to do. So I start with as much of that as the class period can stand, because sometimes you don't have as much time as you would like.
2: Um,
1: And then I usually have some organized the kinds of questions that I want to ask. Um, If I were homeschooling, I don't know how, you know, and not dealing with a whole group of people that I'm trying to lead. Mm-hmm. I might make it more up to them and their questions. I might make that I might give them a chance to start with with their questions and not just points of information, but questions for discussion. Um, uh, I know Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening so well. Um, I know a number of Frost poems. I, I know Directive well and as mm-hmm. well. So I, after Apple Picking, I know pretty well, but. I'm more familiar with the questions I have about those others. So I might say something, um, about stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Um, I might start by just asking just a general question about what, um, what's the conflict here? You know, what's, what's going on? Or a a larger question like who's talking and to whom, um, or, you know, so those are kind of framing questions that, um, give them a, sort of the wide pegs to put in the ground of what's happening here. Um, Or I might say, what's going on with the horse? Um, My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, you know. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there's some mistake. Like, why? Like, the horse seems to have conscious. you know, seems to be aware in this poem. Why? What's going? So I might ask those kinds of questions to get the conversation going. And then, um, did you want to interrupt at that point?
0: Well, I was just going to ask, at what point do you... Start. Do you ask questions about um, any kind of narrative that might be happening in the poem? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, so, based on after apple picking, for example, there's kind of a clear. I wouldn't. It's not like a narrative in a traditional sense with a rising action and the climax and all that. But mm-hmm. there is obviously something going on, and there's there's that's like a narrative. That's like a story. At what point do you start discussing what what's ha- what like what is actually happening to the poet? in the poem. Almost
1: a paraphrase, even. Right, yeah. I I love your narrative. Um, I think that, you know, after you've done this uh, direct contact stuff that I've talked about, asking a question of what the narrative is is a wonderful question to ask. Okay. Um, And the the only thing is, um, sometimes if you go too quickly to the narrative question, people want to kind of characterize the whole thing um, particularly like after apple picking is kind of a difficult poem. Yeah. And so, um, they might be trying to right away, talk about the theme and talk about what it's saying yeah. without having gotten dirty, you know? And so if I think that it's a, so for stopping by woods on a snowy evening, the narrative is relatively simple right. or dust snow, simple narrative. Right. Um, but after apple picking directive, birches, complex narratives, so, with a more complex narrative, I would wait a little bit before asking that overarching trajectory narrative paraphrase kind of question, and I would start maybe uh, chronologically, um, okay. so that they have to kind of where are we now, you know? Mm-hmm. Or I would start elementally, you know, okay. as I said, like about the voice or about the. So it's kind of your judgment about whether or not the students are going to be able. If you give them a starting point that's too abstract, they might never get into the particulars and build their case or not just their case, but build their understanding.
2: Right.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: Again, I only think that's a problem with after apple picking or with purchase or with directive. Yeah, Yeah. you do. How do you um, you love that poem? How do you start it?
0: Uh, Well, I suppose that does depend on the class, the Mm -hmm. the group of students and when I'm teaching it and and that sort of thing. Um, I think one of the things I like about that poem is that the narrative kind of reveals itself in a way, the more you read it, because for a lot of students, the first time they read it, they don't see that immediately or they don't see how it's, it's almost like a series of abstract images to them combined, interspersed with like actual, very, um, that, that are, I'm trying to think of how to say this, that are, um, the, yeah, but they're interspersed with, there's, there's a very tactile sensory thing going on in that poem. Like the idea of the foot on the, um, there's a foot on a ladder and he doesn't have shoes on and he talks about how he can feel the, the, the bar of the ladder, the imprint of that left on his foot after being up on the ladder picking apples all day. So you get that, but. The the narrative kind of reveals itself, I think. So I'm, I think I'm with you. I think you kind of affirmed what I was kind of thinking and that I didn't want to get to it too quickly. But then, because I think sometimes it does kind of, poems like that tend to reveal themselves. Yeah, there you go. I'll
2: have it right here.
0: (laughs) Um, I think that's a great poem for teaching students to think poetically and the way metaphor works Mm -hmm. um, in poems. But I always read that poem out loud a lot as you said is the one that once as i was teaching poetry when i got to that one i kind of didn't know what else to do with it <laughs> but to read yeah. it out loud you know yes <clears throat> and there was something about it that made me want to teach it that made me want to introduce it and it might have just been that i liked it as a reader and i didn't know a lot when i first started trying to teach it i didn't i had to do a lot of research on it i didn't necessarily know a lot about the poem but there was something that just kind of made it mean something to me. And I, I think it was something that's hard to explain. There's kind of a mystery to why we like certain poems, I think. But I brought it to them. We just read it out loud a lot. And I, a lot of them came away liking it. I think there's some kids that came away not liking it, but I don't know that they were going to like anything that year.
1: <laughs> that's a good, good point. I mean, I love what you're
0: saying. I, I'm going to pull it up I, on my phone so we both
2: have it.
1: Okay. I think it's what Frost says regularly in his prose that, um, we do really need to learn to think metaphorically. We need to think with metaphor. I mean, in fact, he goes so far as to say at one point, all of thought is metaphor. Yeah. You know, he, as he gets older, he really begins to say, essentially, if you can't think and speak metaphorically and you can't understand how far to take a metaphor and when to, um, you know, say the metaphor can't, Um, the metaphor ends here, the comparison Mm -hmm. ends, it's not a good comparison anymore, Um, then you're not educated. Mm -hmm. And um, I think one thing that somebody might hear me quote Frost on that and say, oh gosh, I knew I couldn't do this. But no, his whole point Hmm. is Get your head into poems and start thinking like that because it's not something that someone can just teach you propositionally. You have to do it, and that thing that you're saying right now about this poem is you had to do it a lot, and you had to do it with the same poem, and the poem kind of led you into itself. Um, the metaphor led you into itself.
2: Yeah, um,
0: I think what this is what what I was trying to say. I think I, is that. It's a poem that's got very tactile, sensory, physical metaphors all throughout. That when you add them all together, the poem, I think, is a little confusing because it's when you add them together, they're saying something abstract, which is what I mean. That's what a poem does, but in a way that is very, um, it's not immediately clear. And so you have to spend a lot of time with those metaphors. Mm -hmm. Some poems, what those, the, the abstraction that all those metaphors add up to is more immediately obvious.
1: That's a good point.
0: <clears throat> and here it's less immediately obvious. So if you don't kind of revel in the world of those metaphors, and in this case, it, he really is, he's creating this little scene. If you don't revel in that scene that those metaphors make up and just kind of really look at them and think about them and try to smell them and feel them and all those kind of things, then it makes it difficult to uh, to get to and approach that abstraction. And maybe the snowy stopping what is it stopping in the woods um, what is the name of that What is the actual name of that poem
1: Stopping by woods on a snowy evening
0: okay um, it's one of those poems that you everybody knows but when you actually say the name I was thinking it might have been something completely different than what is the actual line I know <clears throat> but a poem like that maybe the metaphors create work to an abstraction or add up to an abstraction that is more readily apparent or more easily more obviously apparent. Maybe I'm completely wrong about that, but.
1: Well, you're saying a couple things that are, are really interesting to me. Um, um, To back up uh, to what you were saying about after apple picking, um, there's a sense in which this one in particular, it leads you in.
2: um, Mm, Yes. It
1: leads you wrong by wrong, so to speak. Yeah. um, Into its knowledge And if you try to start, it's fairly impenetrable if you try to start with the end. You know, if you try to start with the abstraction.
0: Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people do. Because you get to the end and then everyone says, wait, what just happened? And so then you start trying to solve that. But it's like you can't solve... I'm just drop my pen you can't solve a crime just by looking at the end of it
1: or a math problem yeah that's I mean, true I yeah i love what you explained about poetry that's great david that is so perfect because even stopping with what's on a snowy evening where a kindergartner can tell me um well you know he wants to stay but he can't and he's sad about it you know um okay very simple thing um But yet, what we understand about what it feels like to be in that position, which is all our life, how many days do we wake up and feel that conflict about the commitments that we've made and keeping them at some level, you know, whether it's getting to work, staying married, making breakfast, you know, all these things are really hard for us to do. Mm -hmm. And he fleshes out in this whole-bodied way. What it feels like to feel that thing that whether it's simple like I want to stay in the woods or complex like I want to keep my commitment to marriage, um we he he shows us how to dwell in that. And so it's not really simple. And if you mm-hmm. just start with the conclusion, you don't know that the whole poem. And here's what's so interesting about that scientific aspect that we were talking about If you understand that basic conflict in that poem of pulling in two directions one is your kind of your your appetite and one is your commitment you know your mind um uh then you're so thrilled when you begin to see how the rhyme scheme is working Mm. because the rhyme scheme has this one outcast sound that becomes the rhyme scheme for the next stanza and so the sounds of all the rhyming words are exactly what's going on in the heart and mind of the speaker Mm. and that's a scientific detail that's incredibly pleasurable Mm -hmm. but it would be stupid vacuous inane if you didn't first understand and and at some level feel the relationship of the conflict he's describing to your life but then the Mm. other thing that i wanted to say about after apple picking that you reminded me of is that Frost is so much more a lover. He loves symbolism. Mm -hmm. He doesn't ever want to just nail things down directly for us. He wants to be suggestive about a figure that he creates in multiple ways and multiple directions. And so that's why what you're describing of um, solving it the way you have to solve for a math problem. I mean, not exactly the way, but that sense of you could never just start with the answer. You have to build um when it's complex and it would be far too abstract if you just started part of that is because of frost himself he wants to build the symbolic world for us he Mm -hmm. doesn't want us to have access and he even has that one line in um directive about um i'm just gonna read it because it's so great in reference to this Yeah,
0: that's a good one Um, i need to memorize that one
1: i do too i've tried (laughs) I lose it, you know. I don't keep it going long yeah. enough. He he says um, uh, at the end of that. I have kept hidden in the instep arch of an old cedar at the waterside, a broken drinking goblet like the Grail under a spell, so the wrong ones can't find it. That's what he does with his poems. Hmm. He keeps their knowledge under a spell, so the wrong ones can't find it.
0: Can you read that one more time?
1: yeah I have kept hidden in the instep arch of an old cedar at the waterside a broken drinking goblet like the grail under a spell so the wrong ones can't find it hmm. so he's hid this holy grail um this goblet to drink out of and you know d- drink and and in the end it says drink and be beyond confusion you know drink. <laughs> Uh, it's this beautiful thing but in any way in some ways it's about his poetry it's about other things too yeah. but it's about his poetry just like you're describing he releases to it uh, he releases it to us step by step and slowly and image by image and language by language rhythm by rhythm and he he's keeping it under a spell because he doesn't want us to be able to have that kind of access to its abstraction because the whole thing matters. Hmm. Um, so I love what you're saying about after apple picking. I think you're absolutely just right on. Do you want to
0: go ahead? Go ahead.
1: Get really sunk into the poem itself. We, we could. <laughs> Should um, we answer a few questions and then try to demonstrate what we're talking about?
0: I, I was going to suggest that, and I know we have a limited amount of time. So, um,
1: yeah.
0: <clears throat> I was I was going to say. I was going to ask you one of my questions. I have written here was what tips do you have for helping a poem come alive to a group of students? We've already talked a little little bit about that. Um, we could talk about the nature of metaphor till we're blue in the face and till the sky's not blue anymore. Um, I, ha- I talked to John Hodges this morning actually um, <laughs> about music, and he was talking about how he's more and more coming to believe that that music is metaphor. Um, And that his understanding of music has grown and evolved and changed as he's begun to think of music as metaphors, you know, uh, harmonies as being metaphor for the Trinity and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's very higher level stuff as far as music goes. Um, But it's, it's so interesting to have the same. I mean, I would have, you know, I expected to talk about metaphor when talking about poetry, but it's interesting to have both those conversations in the same day in relation to language and music and how, you know, I have my friend Josh Leland. Um, who writes for us sometimes and Cersei and I think you you I think mm-hmm. you have met Josh. He always talks about how um, the the metaphors by which we see the world determine so much of who we are. The metaphors oh. you think of when you think of education, like ha- what metaphors do you use for your classroom? Yeah. Um, because that's going to ter- determine how you teach. What metaphor do you think of in terms of your relationship with your spouse or your kids? or your pet or your, you know, all the metaphors for the way we think of how we interact with each other determine, um, so much of how we live our lives.
1: Tell me yours for those two things. Oh, Um, (laughs) jeez, And for marriage or family.
0: Um, well, Josh and I always talk about, we taught, we taught together. Actually, we both taught English to high schoolers and we kind of, we tried to cooperate as much as we could in our classes. Mm. And when it came to the classroom, we talked a lot about how we can't think of our classes as... Or we don't believe we can think of our classes as a in a kind of more of a business metaphor um, because if you think of your classes as a business metaphor then you think of your students I mean something that has to be a product then right
2: mm-hmm. and
0: so then the students become either the students or the work of art become the product i would I would argue that it's the student becomes the product that you're trying to manufacture, and as soon as you begin thinking about your students that way, your relationship with them changes so I'd say that <laughs> I would you, there's a number of metaphors that you could use for a classroom. I would probably lean towards the idea of of a farm or something like that, um, something a little more agricultural. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think about that a lot, and I'm not sure that I'm 100 percent sold on that. But not every element of it has to be exactly a one to one correlation for the metaphor to be something meaningful. That's um, a
1: cross thing. Mine is bees and honey because. It's very sweet, mm. but it takes so much hard work, you know? And you're
0: going to get stung sometimes.
1: <laughs> and you're going to get stung, yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, you're going to have a hard winter and the hive's going to die. And, you know, all kinds of... It's not all sweet. I, yeah, that's you know?
0: good. Spoken like a poet.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I, I think a lot about the, what my metaphor is for, for, a fam- for family. Mm-hmm. Um, as a father and as a husband. And, um, it's, it's less seasonal. <laughs> um, well, it's seasonal, in the, this, but the seasons are longer. Like, in a school year, you actually go by the seasons, and, and the way the seasons change, the actual four seasons, kind of is how your school year operates. You are st- we still operate around a very specific seasonal form in our classrooms most of the time. Yeah. Our families aren't the same way the seasons are longer the seasons have to do with the kid kids growing and each you going through dis- different seasons of their lives and their experiences and their growth and you know you have good seasons and bad seasons as yeah. as a couple as as a husband and wife as you know you kids we talk about kids going through phases all the time right it's just a phase <laughs> hopefully he'll grow out of this phase yeah. <laughs> So I think, but I think that the farm metaphor there works well, and maybe I just read too much Wendell Berry, but the farm metaphor still works there. Speaking of which, yeah, I was gonna say happy birthday, eighty-one today. Um, uh, But I think the metaphor still works because you have to be, you have to be patient. There's a lot you have to plant seeds, and you have to water them, and you have to wait, and you have to pay attention to them, and you have to let them be the plants that they are. Yeah. So I've got, like I said, I, I have two boys. And I have to, if one of them's, they're not both tomatoes, right? Right. You know, one of them maybe is the cucumber plant and one of them's tomato and they take a different kind of care. And sometimes I have, you, you wish that your kids would just one size fits all and you could do the same things. Yeah. I wish that the things that I do for Coulter that help him grow and would also work for Jeremiah. I know. And uh sometimes you know, Jeremiah is a year he's fourteen months younger and he's there's a lot of ways where he does things a lot better than his older brother, you know? Even though he's yeah. only two and a half and his older brother's almost four. Um and I wish those things that he does well. I don't know what we did to make him do those things well, and we didn't do them with Coulter. And so Yeah, it has doesn't have that much to do with us as far as that goes, I imagine.
1: Probably. But yeah. <clears throat> but I think I the with What's that? <laughs> might have to do with culture yeah
0: an older yeah and also the younger ones you know they interact with each other they see the younger one sees things sees us interacting with his older brother in a way that the old that the older one didn't have to see exactly. so yeah. but yeah we there's so many uh, that's a that's a very open-ended question you just asked me <laughs>
1: Well, I think it would be great for our listeners to um, ask themselves that question and ask their families that question and their classrooms, um, their homeschooled children or whoever is listening, because um, I agree with Josh a hundred percent. In some ways, the quality of our life is almost um, is so largely beholden to the quality of our metaphors, how we conceive of a thing almost is what that thing is. I mean, there yeah. are realities outside of our conception.
2: Hmm. And but how, yet, on
1: the other hand, the way we perceive it yeah. matters a lot.
2: Yeah.
0: And the way we perceive... I just had a different question about the, the, different, the, nature, the differences between the words perceive and conceive. But that's a different conversation for a different day. Yeah. But <clears throat> the way we um, conceive or perceive... Of our relationships in particular, like what are the metaphors for the relationships we have with people who yeah. are important to us or, or especially for whom we have a th- or over whom we have authority? Mm-hmm. The kind of metaphors we use there, I think, determine a lot about the, the quality of that relationship and therefore the quality of our lives, as you put it.
1: Or even if we, we lack metaphors, mm. it means we haven't thought about it, mm. you know? Um, that's the other thing I would say just about the pleasure of the poetry classroom, is that it's it's so important as you read poems I just heard from a mother this week who told me that she was one of those people that hated poetry and was and was afraid of it, she loved music and, and literature, but not poetry and she um, started reading Robert Frost at lunchtime to her kids and it really changed them hmm. um, and I think I would just say that, for one thing, um, just starting anywhere, starting anywhere, and sharing it with anyone, <laughs> um, is such a it's such an easy point of entry. And then as you be, as you move forward, you come to share that. So it's not just up to you to love it, but other people latch on to things and you see their pleasure and and then as a body of people a community you start using that language together you know i'm sure that you have certain phrases from after apple picking that you at least say to yourself inside your head Um, or
0: images that i see
1: images yes Mm -hmm. um and i understand the world by this language and i say it with to my kids you know and i'll Sometimes I won't even remember how to say it without the poem, the image, or the hmm. language. You know, I'll have yeah. to have my child remind me <laughs> what it meant before we started talking through this yeah. language. But I, I think that's one of the things it gives us. It gives us a shared vocabulary. It gives us a shared family of images, a shared garden of delight. Um, and we can have access to that even if we aren't super intelligent about that poet or the context or all the elements of poetry or the point in history, Hmm. you can have access without all that. The, the access increases as you increase those circles of knowledge, but you don't need them to begin.
0: Hmm. Um, do you have a few minutes to, to put this into practice or do we need to do that for another show?
1: Oh no, no, no Practice is Very important.
0: Okay. How do you want to do this? Um,
1: do you want to choose after apple picking because you love it so much or do you think it, we should choose a simpler one?
0: I was going to say maybe we should choose a simpler one and maybe even one that we're not both, like that neither of us have a ton of knowledge about so we could go through okay. the process of discovery.
1: Okay. Um, there's one that I haven't spent that much time with um, called Fireflies in the Garden. It's only six lines.
0: Okay, perfect.
1: Um, do by you fir- want
0: I'm Googling it right now. <laughs>
1: Okay, great.
0: Fireflies. uh, There we go. I'm sure Poetry Foundation or someone has it. Yes. There it
1: is. (laughs) Um, I'll read it and then you read it. How about that? sounds good. Fireflies in the garden. Here come real stars to fill the upper skies. And here on earth come emulating flies that... Though they never equal stars in size, and they never and they were never really stars at heart, achieve at times a very star like start. Only of course they can't sustain the part. Hmm.
0: <clears throat> yeah, that's nice. <laughs> that that poem is like a nice glass of wine. Like, that's the the sensory response that I I felt like my brain was doing something similar to what you have when you have a really delicious first sip of a really good wine that you have with, like, a nice meal. That's the same thing my brain was doing.
1: Oh, you're making me wish that that's what we were doing.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, we could pause this and come back and be doing that. Um, All right, I'll read it now. Okay. After I cough.
1: And it's a wine that's easy to like. Yes. I mean, yeah, yeah, oh, you know, yeah. you, like, pick one. Which one would you pick?
0: It's not some I kind of...
1: Dona Paula. Have you had that one? I don't think so. Okay. I have to
0: admit I'm much more of a... Um... I don't know if I can say this in the air. I'm much more of a like bourbon scotch guy than I am wine. So I'm much more... My, my expertise is more on that side. The wine is more of a um, mystery to me.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> which Basil... I actually am
0: kind of okay with.
1: Basil Hayden.
0: Oh, okay. Now you're um, now you're speaking my language. <laughs> that's a, that's yes, that is a good easy one to like. <clears throat> Fireflies in the garden. Here come real stars to fill the upper skies, and here on earth come emulating flies that though they never equal, that though they never equal stars in size and they were never really stars at heart, achieve at times a very starlike start. Only of course they can't sustain the part.
1: I love the way you read that there was so much personality in your reading You <laughs> emphasized different words than I did
0: it's funny to read a poem for the first time after having just heard someone else because you know a little bit about it but you haven't actually had to breathe with it or like yes. pr- produce the words so when I heard you reading it I was thinking oh I like that emphasis I'll probably do it that way but then when I actually was reading it my the way I breathe and speak didn't do that <laughs>
1: Yes, but I loved it because one of the things you did was it's an incredibly dense poem in terms of its sounds and the mm-hmm. tightness of its sounds, mm-hmm. you know.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but you broke that up so it didn't sound quite as formal as it is. Mm. Um, And I like that a lot.
0: What is some? You mentioned the next thing you typically like to do is <clears throat> talk to f- talk about favorite lines. Mm-hmm. What are a couple lines? That, well, there's only a few couple lines in the whole thing, but <laughs> Um
1: well, um, I love upper skies. Um mm. Um I like starlike start.
0: Mhm. How about you? I was struck immediately by the idea of sustaining the part.
1: Yeah.
0: <clears throat> and I'm not sure why it felt like a it was such an it felt like a new metaphor at the at the end mm-hmm. for what was going on with the rest of the poem. Um, Absolutely. The, the upper yeah. skies is really good. I mean, I love the upper skies emulating flies rhyme there. Um, mm-hmm. The idea of it imitation It kind
1: of surprises you too because you think it's going to be um Couplets, you know, with two two rhymes yeah. to you know every line like skies and flies, blah 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 blah. But it's three, so skies, flies, size, heart, start, part, and mm. that throws you off a little. Um, but it's beautiful because, of course, he's talking about emulating, yeah, imitating, and so the fact that he sustains the sounds and more sounds emulate each other rather than fewer. There's only two sounds governing the whole poem in terms of those end rhymes. And that just makes a lot of intuitive sense. And that's an example of something that I observe. But you wouldn't need to observe that to know it was happening. Yeah, yeah. No?
0: You kind of feel it before you... I mean, you you. the only reason you probably went... And <clears throat> I mean, it's obvious and it's simple in a sense. And you're trained and have a lot of experience. But there's a certain extent <clears throat> to which... I imagine, um, you would feel that and then go looking for it.
1: Exactly. I love that. That's a perfect way to describe poetry, David. That's, you just summarized in the most elegant phrase, what I was taking 10 minutes to say at the beginning, you just said, right. You would feel it and then go look for it.
0: Yeah. You feel it. And then because you feel it, you start, you go look for what you felt, like for why you felt that. Yes. What do you think of the, there's two things that we both or I stumbled on two things you stumbled on one of them Mm -hmm. I stumbled on the word real at the beginning for whatever reason and it might have been I was in a hurry and then I believe we both stumbled on the and they were never really stars at heart part right the parenthetical there so I guess my question is why do you think we stumbled on that (laughs)
1: this is so it's such a great question because of course this is what some like very sophisticated literary theorists talk about, right? right? Right. These errors we make are not just errors. They're telling us something. But I think it's so interesting, the words that we stumbled on were real and really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the subject of the poem, Yeah. right? The yeah. subject of the poem is this reality and emulation. Um, the real stars and the fireflies, The fireflies are imitating the real stars. Um,
0: Starlight. And even that word
1: very is another form of really in a sense. You know, real um, where, um, you know, truth uh, in that sense.
0: This is it may be meaningful and it may not. Uh Uh-huh. But I think it's interesting that you have as you mentioned you have those first three lines that have the same rhyme and the last three have the same rhyme but the last the third line and the fourth line where the rhyme switches there mm-hmm. they both have that they were never thing they were never there i don't know if that's that's probably it might, it's got to mean something that though they never equal stars in size and they were never really stars at heart so that word never kind of bridges those two rhymes. I don't don't know what that means, but it's, it's, it's interesting.
1: Interesting because, of course, that, I mean, what you're pointing out is that that's also the moment at which we don't have the reassurance of that sound at the end, right? For the mm. first time in the poem and the last time in the poem, we don't get the ear comfort of two end words that kind of close the deal, right? Right. So that feeling is there's a little discord there because of our expectation has been set up to expect that closure. And the thing that it's talking about is actually there's not as much closure as it might seem. And then the same thing is being played out in the rhyme scheme. Yeah. Um, but it's also interesting. Like you say that there are other connections. I mean, there's the word stars and stars, never, never, they, they, a lot of repetition. Between those two lines, and then of course this parenthetical statement, um, you know, as if he's saying, "Well, you know, they were never really friends. <laughs> you wouldn't know, you know." Yeah. Um, and then he goes back to his more formal statement-like language. A very achieve at times a very star-like start. Closure, punctuation, yeah. end of poem, right? Yeah. No. Then, like you said, the poem opens up into the whole wide world of meaning. It's not just about fireflies and stars anymore. On that last line,
0: yeah. So you get the first uh, f- five lines, I guess, are one sentence. One sentence. You've got an end stop there, and then you have yeah. the last line as another sentence. Only, of course, they can't sustain the part. Is that a um? Achieve a very at times achieve at times. That's an interesting little a- ad thing thing he adds in there. At times,
1: right. achieve at times a
0: very star like start.
1: Yeah, he almost de- deconstructs it, right? Or he undoes it. He says yeah. achieve at times, kind of like that parenthetical statement. Yeah. He wants to qualify everything. He's a logician, this guy. <laughs> you know
0: only of course they can't sustain the part do you do you feel like do you feel like that's a um a hopeful or a hopeless ending
1: uh okay can we back up for a minute sure to, can, like i think it's really important we're talking about stars and fireflies, and you almost can forget that, even though the title says fireflies in the garden. Mm-hmm. And so I always like to just to remind myself to bring my back myself back into contact with the things themselves. So, mm. OK, we're in the garden. When do fireflies come out? July. Um, so, well, they come out in June, but yeah. depending on the year, they're sometimes gone by July, like 10th. But yeah. this year they're still around. Yeah. So, okay, it's July. We're in the garden. It's dark. The stars come out at dark you're sitting back there outside in the humidity and the stars are out and then the fireflies are blinking and the stars are blinking and the fireflies are blinking and the fireflies are are close to you and the stars are far away from you and so I think that that whole setup is so important like part of what you were just saying about metaphors that John Hodges was saying um, that metaphor he didn't say it quite like this, but I love saying it like this. It's discovering the invisible relations hmm. among and between things. Hmm. and Which that, is
0: why the metaphors you use for relationships
1: is... Important. Yeah, important. But see, part of what's so interesting about that is that we think about making a metaphor. I'm going to make the best metaphor, but what that language suggests is actually the whole world is corresponding with itself. In hmm. other words, we have stars and we have fireflies. Yeah. And there's a sense in which, I mean, he's making this very metaphysical statement about metaphor and about the world, that the world reproduces, it echoes itself, mm-hmm. you know, this beautiful thing. And it's almost as if, you know, like Plato was saying that that there's this, everything we see is a metaphor for something else. Mm-hmm. And there's an invisible relationship between the whole world and itself. It's all makes sense. It's all coherent. It's all beautifully saying the same thing to us over and over again. Um, But it says it in different ways. So that's one thing that I think of. But then the other thing I think of at the end there, in terms of whether or not it's positive, is that to me, because now immediately I'm thinking about our humanity and about the fact that there's something in us that wants to be stars but knows that we're fireflies. Um, We want to be grand. We want to be beautiful. We want to be esoteric and lofty and... You know? And sometimes
0: we might achieve it a little bit.
1: Yeah, just a little bit, just at times.
0: For a a moment.
1: A star-like start. Yeah. And can't you imagine saying that to somebody? Like, now I'm going to say, David, you know, you had a very star-like start that time you did X, you know? Yeah. That was a star-like start. Yeah. Yeah. and i don't know there's something very understanding there's something very human about that last line hmm. that is seeming to be to be compassionate even empathetic to the fact yeah. that we're not stars we're fireflies and if we expect performance star performance um it's going to be hard for us
2: yeah
0: i like how you set the scene though because you those first two lines, here come... You can just see him sitting there or walking or yes. wherever he is. Yes. Here come real stars to fill the upper skies. And here on earth come emulating flies. And then he gets into the bit about the flies. Yeah. But, it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so simple it, but so vivid.
1: It is. And even as you're reading it, I'm remembering that part of what's happening in the poem is that it's happening. Here come come you know he even says come twice they're they're coming out the way they do i mean isn't that exactly what happens with stars and fireflies the way that we perceive them yeah you know they they begin to emerge like you see the first one and it's still kind of dusk and then suddenly it's dark and suddenly you begin seeing all these twinkles you know and the stars likewise we know that they're not really coming out to fill the upper skies they're there but that's how we perceive them coming. And Mm -hmm. so it's just such a human angle that is the mind in process in a sense.
0: And it's, you mentioned the compassion at the end because it is compassionate and the stuff about that though they never equal stars in size and they were never really stars at heart, it's not condescending in a sense. Like he, he it's here come the fly here and here on earth come, come emulating flies and he's, He's praising them in a sense because they. The first time I read it, the first time I heard it from you, I thought not that it was condescending, but that it was, um, that it was kind of he. It was kind of sad in a sense. That he was sad that they weren't able to achieve that. Yeah. They weren't able to maintain that. That 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 it's a poem about how all things pass away, right? And so it's kind of sad in a sense. Yeah. But he you know, even when he says they were never really stars at heart it, or though they never equal stars in size, I flipped those lines up just there, but um, it wasn't that they're, it's just that they weren't, they didn't equal in size. It wasn't that they were not valuable. They just, mm-hmm. they're not the same size or mm-hmm. they were never really stars at heart. It's not that they weren't valuable. They just, and it's interesting that he said they were, he didn't just say they were never really stars. They were never really stars at heart. Something about within the, heart of these fireflies they're not stars and i wonder i wonder what he's doing there that's the that's what i'm going to think about for a while
1: oh i love that you're asking that question i mean immediately it strikes me that when he says at heart he's partly saying they didn't aspire Mm. to it and partly saying at nature you know Yeah. yeah um and and um I mean, this is a bigger question, but I'm going to say it just because um, I often get this question of how, at what point do you start over-interpreting a poem?
0: Yeah, you're right. Um,
1: so what I immediately think about is um, the whole concept of theosis, of um, human beings who have a spark of God in them taking on God and becoming God in the process of participating with God and being close to God. Mm-hmm. Um that Christian concept from the East. It suggests that to me. Now, was Frost suggesting that? We don't know. All we know is that he created the groundwork, and he created the category. And this is what I mean about him being a symbolic thinker, and I think symbolic thinkers give you a lot of room to fill in the category. So he created that category of, um, of something grand and lofty and high and esoteric, And then something small and imitative with a spark of what that big thing has in it. Mm. Um, And so, my um, particular that is theological, that's filling that category that he created, I'm not suggesting that he was thinking about that at all, but I do think that he made to make room for me to think about it. Mm. So, I think it would be wrong to say, well, Frost means, Frost is talking about theosis. He's probably not. Yeah. But he makes room, and he creates, categorically and metaphorically, room for me to think about that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another addendum to what you were saying about how poems think and how metaphors think. Mm -hmm. They help us think. They open up our brain. And now if I think about it a little more, I'm going to say, well, actually, theosis is saying something different, because Frost is actually saying, no, those are fireflies. Those are stars. They're different. They didn't necessarily want to be the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas now we can get in and like talk about all the fine parts of the theological thing, which wouldn't serve what we're doing here. You could make the argument either way that theosis does or does not fit this category.
0: Right. So, so then, a great poem. The difference between a great poem and a mediocre poem
1: yes. is
0: it that that through the metaphors and through the language, it's opening itself up to be a vehicle for contemplation um, about okay. itself, but also about anything.
1: I love that, vehicle of contemplation, and I would just add to that, a vehicle of contemplation for many people. And I think that lesser poems, and I put the poems that I write into this category, um, only a few people can use them to contemplate, Um, but it's one that invites many in because it's just particular enough and just universal enough that lots can fit, you Mm. know, lots of thought, lots of people. Lots yeah. of imaginations can dwell there.
0: And it doesn't have to be a complicated poem to do that.
1: It does not. This is a perfect example.
0: Yeah, this is a, one of my favorite Wendell Berry poems is maybe six lines long. And I, my wife and I actually had it on our wedding favors. We gave bookmarks out that had it on it. Oh. And so I've thought so about fun? it. I don't know if I've thought about it every day, but I think about it all the time. And it's very simple, but it's, you know... Yeah, it's had, thing, it's had things in there for me to think about, about marriage and about parenting and about poetry and about life in general for, I don't know what, seven years now. And doesn't need to be complicated to do that. What's that? Which poem? Oh, it's called Whatever Happens.
1: Okay, I'm writing it down. I'm going to go look it up.
0: <clears throat> I can recite I it for you if you want. I love that
1: you have that blessing. Um, yeah, recite it for us.
0: All right, see if I get it wrong. I'm gonna get it wrong now that I said I can do it.
1: I'm sorry.
0: It goes, um, whatever happens, those who have learned to love one another have made it to the lasting world and will never leave. Whatever happens, and so it's a very simple poem, even from a construction standpoint.
2: Yes,
0: it's very simple, and of course, part of it being meaningful to me is the, the context in which we came. I came to it, and that my wife yeah. and I had it as a part of our wedding and. It's a big part of our relationship, but it's also, you know, I can tell it's a good poem because I spent six years thinking about it. (laughs) I didn't, I haven't exhausted, I haven't exhausted it. Um, And I spent, you know, I presented it to a class. We talked about it for an hour and didn't even get close. You know, we, I think we talked about the words, whatever happens for the whole time.
1: (laughs) That's beautiful. I'm sure that would be so important to Wendell Berry to hear that because um, it's gone beyond him you know and that's the hope that's the idea and and I would just put a footnote on what you're saying um what people bring to the poem um, matters so much you know if if you're using that poem for your wedding or if you're reading a poem in the midst of dying um, or you know that knowledge of your life that you bring is a form of interpretation It's not the only one, Mm -hmm. but it's a very valid form of interpretation. Poems are human. Mm. And I think that's one thing that we also have to let people do. I mean, as I was saying, you have to separate what the poet made and then what you're adding to it, what's helping you, what's your lens. And it's helpful to know the difference between those two things. But you don't have to keep your lens out of it. And I think that when we teach poems, we have to let people dream inside them.
2: Hmm. I like it's that. It's important
1: like for it. them to know that they're adding to it. But why not? Is that what it's for? Like,
0: yeah, adding to the life of the poem. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then, as the teachers, we need to leave room for our students to to yeah. That's good. I'm just going to leave it at what you said to to dream within the poem. That's that's great. <clears throat> Say that again. How you said it?
2: I don't know if I. Can.
0: <laughs> I ruined it. You said it. You said it beautifully. Um, well, you well, have I, a meet. You have a meeting to go to soon.
1: Week. What's that? David, I wish we could do this every week. <laughs> Just talk about a poem together.
0: Well, we should try to do it more. We should try to do it periodically. Every anyway.
1: Quarter. What's okay. that? Every quarter. Okay,
0: I deal. I'll shake your hand across Skype. <laughs>
1: Maybe people would like that even more, you know, than abstract talk, because I certainly like it. I mean, I feel like I learned so much from you, even in terms of the way you said things and the way you kind of paraphrased things. Um, That was so made me alive to an idea that I've known again.
0: Well, let's put the question to our listeners then. If you would like us to do, you know, something like that, we, we'll do it. Um, we'll get some feedback and maybe people can recommend some poems they'd like us to talk about or okay.
2: if okay. people,
0: I'm sure we could, I'm sure people would send us a very long list of poems and we'll have to whittle it down to one. But um, thank you so much for joining I mean, me.
1: Thank you. It was really good to be with you.